Uh, we now come to our time in the Word. So if you have your Bibles, uh, it's time to pull those out. We're returning to the book of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 1. And as we turn there, children are dismissed for children's church at this time. Jonah chapter 1, uh, verse 17. And as you're turning, uh, consider this. A few weeks ago, we, we made this point that very few people wake up in the morning, stretch their arms, yawn, and say, today feels like a good day to rebel. I feel like, I feel like a rebellion today. No, people don't wake up and do that. What people do is, 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 is we rebel because of something. There's something that causes rebellion. There's a catalyst. There's an impetus. There's something that puts its shoulder into us that causes us to rebellion, that leads us to rebel against God. And in Jonah's case, it was the Lord's sovereignty. The Lord was exercising his sovereignty in a way that did not meet Jonah's approval. And Jonah was mad. And he was angry. And that's what led to Jonah's rebellion. On the one hand. On the other hand this morning, the same is true of repentance. Nobody wakes up in the morning, stretches their arms and yawns and says, Ah, I think today is a great day for repentance. I think today I will repent. Just like rebellion, repentance is caused by something. There is a catalyst. There is something that puts its shoulder into us that causes us to repent. And in this morning where we are in this passage, we're at a very key point in Jonah's life. Up, up, leading up to this point, Jonah is in rebellion against the Lord. But something's going to happen. There's a catalyst. Something happens that, that, that turns Jonah's heart, that leads Jonah in, in chapter 2 to pray this prayer of repentance. What is that event? Let me remind you of what Hebrews says. Hebrews says, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us to repent before him. So let's read of God's kindness. Jonah 1, verse 17. This is God breathed. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days. And three nights. Let's pray. Spirit, we have wandered once again into your territory. As you illumine the minds of the writer of Jonah, the writer of Scripture, as you cause them to see the truth of God, so too will you illumine our minds and our hearts, cause the scales to fall off our eyes, turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, and to make them fertile ground. And may the seed take root and grow into beautiful blossoms of righteousness. Spirit, reclaim this time. Use this time for your sake and for your name, we pray. Amen. If, if the book of Jonah had a soundtrack, if there was a little sleeve at the back of Jonah where you could pull out a, a CD, and this was the soundtrack that kind of captured some of the major themes of Jonah. If scripture did that, this song, I think, would be the title track, okay? This song is an old song. It's about a century old. It's, it's almost 100 years old now. It was written by a man named Lou Brown back in the 30s. The artist who sang it, there were several. Um, they have all died. Uh, the one who wrote it, he has died as well. Billie Holiday sang it. Ella Fitzgerald sang it. They're all gone, but the, the lyrics in this song uh, capture a facet of truth I want us to I want us to focus on this morning. And here's the song. It's called, it's titled, Comes Love. And as I read through these lyrics, remember that this is about a century old. And so what some words meant to them a hundred years ago have a different meaning now. So just keep that in mind. You'll know what I mean when we get there. Comes Love. 
Lou Brown. Comes a rainstorm. You can put rubbers on your feet. Comes a snowstorm. Well, you can get a little heat. But comes love. Nothing can be done. Comes a fire, then you know just what to do. Blow a tire, well, you can buy another shoe. But comes love. Nothing can be done. Don't try hiding because there isn't any use. You'll start sliding when your heart turns on the juice. Comes a heat wave. You can hurry to the shore. Comes a summons. You can hide behind the door. But comes love. Nothing can be done. Now what I love about this, this old song, and I've been listening to it a lot over the past week, is, is it captures two truths for us. On one hand, we have, we have them describing in this song uh, this, this very simple truth, which is this. There are some... There's some bad things out there in the, in the world that we have the power to stop. Because God has given us a mind that we can process. We have gifts. We can be creative. There are some bad things out there that we can actually stop. Right? Comes a snowstorm. We don't have to fret. Why? Because we have heaters. Comes a heat wave. Go to the beach. Got a toothache? Go to the dentist. You sick? We have doctors. There's some bad things out there that are stoppable. On the one hand. But on the other hand, they, the, the song also communicates this very powerful truth. There are some good things out there. There are some great things out there. There are some lovely things out there, too, that can't be stopped. Let me say it again. There are some good things out there that can't be stopped. And this song suggests that love is one of them. I would agree, but I would add one little caveat in lieu of our passage this morning. It's, it's God's love that can't be stopped. Regardless of rebellion, regardless of what happened, regardless of what ha- is happening in our lives or in nature... We can rest and rely on this one truth, that God's love is unstoppable. And it's a really, really good thing. In our passage this morning, let me paint a picture for where we've left Jonah. We're at the end of chapter 1. And as I suggested at the beginning, remember, Jonah's angry. Jonah's mad at the Lord. And, And he is so mad, and he is so flagrantly mad and publicly mad, that he has told these sailors, and he has told God himself, that I would rather die than obey. Cast me into the sea, for I am done with this whole service thing to the Lord. And where we are and where our passage fits in this morning is is we're at this very moment where Jonah has gone underwater. He's come back up. He's treading water. And and we're watching the boat kind of leave in the distance. And as the boat leaves and and, and leaves Jonah by himself, uh, the, the wind has stopped. The rain has stopped beating against his brow. The sea has turned to glass. And in the silence, Jonah can hear as the boat pulls away, he can hear these pagan sailors offering sacrifices to God. He can hear them making vows to God. He can hear them praying using Yahweh, the name of God, as they're sailing off into the sunset. And so where do we have Jonah? We have Jonah in the sea, alone, and on death's doorstep. And the question I want us to wrestle with this morning is, If our God is loving and he is unstoppable, what is he going to do with this rebel? What is he going to do with this guy? I'm curious, aren't you? What do you do? Moms, dads, it's the first time, second time, the third time you've reminded that child not to do that? What's the first bullet in your magazine? What is it? Anger? Frustration? You get the spouse on the phone. Do you threaten the wooden spoon? What is, what is your natural reaction to rebellion? Businessmen, businesswomen, 
When someone betrays you or your company, what is your, what is your, what is your knee-jerk reaction? How do, you, how do you respond? Well, in our passage this morning, I'm going to suggest to you that the Lord is going to respond in this way. He's going to rescue Jonah. This is how God acts. This is how God treats rebels. This is how God treats those that just say, I, I no longer want to be in your service. They're in need of rescue. Now, with that in mind, a couple things I want us to focus on this morning with this idea of rescue in, in our minds. First, I want us to look at the author of rescue. Who's going to author this rescue on behalf of Jonah? Second, are the means of rescue? What is this author going to use to rescue Jonah? And thirdly, I want to look at the agent of rescue. So author means agent. First, the author of rescue. One commentator says this, and it's going to sound funny at, at front, but I hope you'll, you'll share the same sentiment. One commentator said this. These words that we're getting ready to look at are some of the sweetest words in the book of Jonah. They're some of the most beautiful words in the book of Jonah. And it's the first three words of verse 17. Look back with me at the text. Verse 17. Look at the first three words. And the Lord. Why are those the sweetest words? Let me back up. Let's go back to verse 1. And, and because we don't have illustrations in the Bible, and because we, don't, we can't look at it on an iPad and have these, these, these great um, illustrations and characters for us, authors um, had to use literary devices to impress upon us what is happening in this text. And I don't want us to miss it this morning. There's something very incredible going on. Verse 1 begins this way. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God is the subject. He's the grammatical subject of verse 1. He is commanding Jonah, to, and, it's, and it's this great news. We, we, we get the sense that something grand and something good is about to happen. God is about to extend his mercy and his grace to this, this wicked nation, and he's going to save them. And God's authoring this. And what a good thing. And then something happens grammatically in verse 2. And it's, if we're watching a movie, uh, this, this, is, this is what we hear in the background. We hear the dun-dun-dun. Okay, we read these words, but Jonah. Notice what's happening here grammatically, the subject changes. No longer is God the subject, now Jonah is the subject. His rebellion is in the spotlight. He wants to take control, he wants to be autonomous, he wants to act separately from God. And at this point in the scripture, we're just going, oh man. I mean, just at these first two words, we're going, but, but Jonah, what's he going to do? we got this, this sour feeling in the pit of our stomach because we know where this is going is, is probably not going to be a good thing. And we're right. Jonah rebels. And at this point in the scriptures, we're led, just, we're led to this point of going, well, what now? What's going to happen? Is somebody going to intervene? Is something going to happen? And that's why the commentator says these are the sweet, sweetest words in Jonah. Verse 4 says this, but the Lord. And verse 17 says this, in the Lord. And what we see happening is this shift back. The spotlight is no longer on Jonah. The spotlight is back on God. He is now the subject grammatically. And what we're supposed to take from this is he's also the, he's also the subject of each of our narratives. Let me illustrate it this way. A couple nights ago, we, were, uh, we had the pleasure of going to a, a Homes of Hope uh, dinner and auction and to hear more about the ministry. And at one point in the night, uh, this one young woman stood up 
And she began to tell her story. And these are her words. These are not mine, but it was a beautiful illustration of this. Um, in her own words, the way she described her life after, after God exercised his sovereignty in a way that she really wrestled with. God exercised his sovereignty. He did something in her life that, that crushed her. And she, so she turned to many addictions. And in her own words, she said, I rebelled against the Lord. And I rebelled against my parents and my family. And as she spoke, she spoke to us as, as, a, as a person who is three years sober of her addictions. Three years sober, free from those things that troubled her. Three years sober uh, and three years strong in the Lord. And the question was, how did she get there? How did she get to that point? This is what she said. She said, I, I tried all the groups. Um, I tried all the helps out there. I tried all the accountability that man has at their fingertips to help you with addictions. You know, fill in the blank, anonymous. I went to it. I went to them all. She said, but what really changed my life was not these groups, was not the accountability. I needed the Lord. You see what happened in her life? She had a verse four moment, but the Lord. She had a but the Lord moment where she was the subject of her own life, where she was calling the shots. The spotlight was on her. I'm going to do this. I'm going to try to bring myself out of the pit. I'm going to try to bring myself out of, the, out of the doorstep of death itself. And she got frustrated. She had to get to the point to where if something doesn't happen here, if the narrative doesn't change, if the subject doesn't change in my story, I'm going to die. And she said, in my life, I had a but the Lord moment and the Lord moment. Some of us here in, in our own minds and our hearts, we, we know where that moment was for us. Where we were calling the shots, we were own people, we, were, we thought we were autonomous, but the Lord woke us up. We had a but the Lord moment and the Lord moment. He disrupted our narrative and he became the subject, removing us from the subject of the text. And we started, he started calling the shots. We started obeying him. Do you remember what that was? Now, some of us I also want to consider this morning were, we may not be reconciled with, with the Lord yet. We're still in rebellion. We are still in our own spotlight. We are still trying by our own devices, our own measures, humanly speaking, uh, to bring ourselves out of slavery. And we've done so in vain. But what was happening to this, this woman, Jennifer, and what's happening to Jonah is a God moment, and each of us need that. Each of us need a moment to where God becomes the subject of our story, not us. But God doesn't stop there. Not only is he the author of, of this great rescue, but I want us to take a look at, at what God uses as his means. We have this great news, we have this great story that God is going to intervene. He's going to be the subject of Jonah's narrative. He's going to be the subject of our narrative. And here's how he's going to do it. Look again at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Two things about the means here. First, I want us to notice the precision of God. The precision of God, and then second, the severity of God. First and briefly, the precision. Uh, in, in verse 4, the first time we see God becoming the subject, uh, again, of the passage, it says, But the Lord hurled. 
He hurled a great wind upon the sea. And here in verse 17, we have the Lord appointing a great fish to swallow Jonah. We have God intervening. And, and, and this word hurl that appears in verse 4, and this word appointed in verse 17 communicates something very specific. Uh, this word hurl has actually appeared in the Old Testament in, in a couple places. One that's going to shed a little light on our subject here. Um, it, it's 1 Samuel 18. Saul is king. David has been anointed. David is his successor. That's a hard word to say. David is his successor. And Saul is being tormented by this evil spirit. And David is in the room. He's in the throne room. And what does Saul do? You may remember the story. Saul picks up his spear and he hurls it at David. He wasn't trying to scare David. The text says Saul was trying to pin David against the wall. That's what the text says. He was trying to kill David. The Lord is not trying to kill Jonah here, but what it's trying to communicate is, th- is this. The Lord's going to hit exactly where he's aiming. The Lord doesn't miss. And in our story, the Lord hurls a storm, and it's meant for the boat, and it's meant for Jonah, and the Lord is going to appoint a fish, and this fish has no other duty except Jonah. The Lord is precise with his means, but also I want us to notice the severity of his means. And let me, let me approach it this way. Many of us are reading this passage and just going, okay, regardless of what we think about Jonah and his particular rebellion, I mean, this, this seems a little harsh. I mean, a storm? I mean, it is not any ordinary storm. Uh, the way that the text describes it, it describes it as a great storm. And this is no ordinary fish. This is a great fish. Why is the Lord being so severe? I believe he's being severe for this reason. The severity of God's response oftentimes illustrates for us the severity of our rebellion, the severity of our sin. You don't put stitches on a mosquito bite, right? You don't add stitches to mosquito bite. That's overkill. That's overreacting. And we're tempted to think here, the Lord is overreacting. A storm, a whale, that seems, that seems a bit much. But here, subtly, what the Lord is trying to communicate to us is as as extreme as my means and my measures are, it communicates to you the extreme and the severity of your rebellion. Unfortunately, like Jonah, we can't be told that we're sinful people. This is a hurdle we all have to get over. Every one of us in this room, to understand the gospel and to understand God's grace and God's mercy, we first have to understand who we are. And the way Scripture portrays us in Genesis is that we're a race in rebellion against God. Jonah is no phenomenon of Scripture. He's no characterization of just like, man, this is how bad it could get. No, as we read through the gospel of Jonah, Jonah's face disappears, and our face appears in it. We're starting to read our own story. We're going, man, this sounds a lot like me. This sounds a lot like me. God's not going to put stitches on a mosquito bite. He's not going to send a great whale and a great storm for just some puny little, little rebellion. No, this is grand. This is great. This is a big problem. And like Jonah, we can't be told. I, I can't sit up here and tell you that this is the truth. We have to be shown. Would you consider this as, as a point of application uh, to this verse? Would you consider this? Would you be courageous enough... Regardless of where you stand in your relationship with the Lord, would you be courageous enough to ask Him to reveal this to you? 
Can you do that? Can you ask the Lord? Or does that scare the pants off of you? It scares me. But in the spirit of David, Lord, did you see anything wicked within me? Am I rebellious? Where, where's the spotlight still on me? Where have I taken subject of, of this narrative? Where have I taken priority in this narrative? And where have I avoided you? Would you be willing to ask the Lord that? Because I, I, I can't tell you, and you just can't take my word for it. You have to be shown. Would you be willing? Would you do that this week? Today? Good news is God doesn't want to leave us there. God doesn't want to just be right. See, I told you. You are rebellious. There. It's not what he wants. He wants to rescue you. Last point is this. I want us to look at the agent of rescue. What is God going to use to rescue Jonah? Look with me again at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Where is rock bottom for Jonah? Where is rock bottom? We use words like this in, in our spiritual vernacular. We'll say, when, when someone is rebelling, you know, gosh, I, you know, I feel like I'm in the belly of the whale. And, and, and when we read this text and we read this passage, you know, our imagination kind of kicks in and we just go, man, what would it be like to be in a humid, acidic, claustrophobic belly of a great fish? And we just go, man, that's rock bottom. That has got to be rock bottom. Nope. I want to suggest to you this morning that the whale is not Jonah's prison. The whale is Jonah's hospital. The whale is not Jonah's cell meant for his punishment the whale is God's coast guard. I want to suggest to you this morning that he's not at rock bottom when he is in the belly of the whale. He is as safe in the belly of the whale as if he were walking on dry land. He is in the Lord's hands. He's in the safest place he could be. And when he's at rock bottom, he's at rock bottom when he's in the sea. Now, that, that sounds funny. We just kind of go, okay, that's not the way I've heard it. But let me prove it to you by, by, in two ways. One is this. When we get to Jonah's prayer, remember what's coming up next. Now, we're going to spend the next few weeks um, in Jonah's prayer, kind of dissecting that, going through it. There is no mention in Jonah's prayer of the whale. There's no mention of it. And he's describing his situation, and it sounds desperate. It sounds horrible. It says, the weeds came up and strangled my neck. The kelp, the seaweed strangled my neck. The waves came over me. He never mentions the fish. Jonah doesn't view the fish negatively. Neither should we. Also, for this reason as well. If, if we're to understand what the sea is uh, to an Old Testament person, we have to kind of um, invade their culture. And, and as simply as I can put it, and I think I've mentioned this before in, an, in another sermon, but what the sea represented to an Old Testament believer or, or a person in this culture was, was something equivalent to like a graveyard for us. It was spooky. You know, over here we have the sea, what, what is dark, we have disorder. We have chaos. Bad things happen there. The Leviathan lives in the deep. It has this negative connotation to it. Oppositely, we have the land. We have the dirt. We have the sky. This is where good things reside. This is where the light and the sun and the stars are. People didn't go to the beach for recreation in the Old Testament. It was kind of a spooky, it was kind of a spooky place. And that's where we find Jonah. At the end of chapter 1, he's in the sea. 
He is in the darkness. He is at death's doorstep. The only place to hear, to go from here is death itself. When he's in the sea, he's at rock bottom. Remembering well this point, friends, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. What leads Jonah to repent in chapter 2? What's going to cause him to pray? Are, are he and God having this spiritual standoff in the belly of the whale? It's been three days. You haven't had water. You haven't had food. I'm going to break you. Is that what's happening in the whale? No. This is God's coast guard. This is God's rescue. He's as safe here as if he were walking on the dry land. They're reminding us at this point, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. We can't repent by ourselves. We can't wake up in the morning, stretch our arms and yawn and think, today I'll repent. I mean, I got some things that are really bothering me. I'm going to repent today. No, God's kindness will do it. And sometimes God's kindness comes in the form of a storm and in a whale, doesn't it? But, you know, just, just from first glance, we just go, man, this is harsh. Man, this is severe. But the only other option is this. It's death. And while at the moment for Jonah, Jonah's just going, man, this is miserable. I'm in the belly of a whale. I was in the sea. But at least I'm not dead. I've been rescued. And not only rescued, you know what the fish does? It delivers them and it spits them out on dry land. God's in the rescuing business. When a sheep is lost, he goes after it. He pursues it. And when he performs these great acts of mercy and these great acts of grace, it causes us to look at our life and go, he is good and he is kind. And now I see my rebellion in a light that I've never seen it before. Now I will pray. Now I will repent. Finally, Jonah prays. Finally, Jonah repents. Some of you have your own well story. Some of you have your own storm story. And just even the mention of, of that, and, and to go back in your mind and recount that, that situation in your life, it makes you nauseous. But can you like Jonah? And can you like the patriarch Jacob, who when he wrestled with the Lord, the Lord touched his hip, and for the rest of his life, he walked with a limp. Can you look at that and say, yes, it was harsh. Yes, it was severe, because it communicated to me the severity of my rebellion. But I can appreciate it. I have a shred of appreciation for it. Can you say that about your whales and about your storms when, it, when, when God is pursuing you and rescuing you? Do you have a shred of appreciation for it? We must. I want to close with this. Oftentimes in the New Testament, Jesus himself will, uh, will quote um, uh, an Old Testament prophet. Uh, he does... Uh, he does so on behalf of Isaiah several times, Malachi, others. But there's only one prophet that Jesus compares himself to. There's only one prophet that Jesus refers himself to, and that's the prophet Jonah. And we're at a very interesting point in his ministry. Jesus has just uh, performed two signs. He's, he's cast out a demon, and he's healed somebody. And this group of people approach him, scribes and Pharisees. And they say, Jesus, we want a, we want a sign. And it's kind of like... What did I just do? But they say, we want a sign. How does Jesus respond? What does Jesus say? Listen to his response. This is Matthew 12, beginning in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil 
An adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Here's what's going on in the passage and my sort of paraphrase of what's happening. What he's telling these scribes and these Pharisees is this simple truth. If you have a problem with the Red Sea, if you have the problem with the, with the unstoppable and loving God, bending creation and nature to his will to obey him, if you have a problem with that, and if you have a problem with Jonah, if you can't believe that what happened in Jonah was real, that he resided in the belly of a whale for three days and lived to tell about it, you're going to have a real hard problem with me. I'm going to be really tough for you to swallow. Here's why. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so I too am going to be in the belly of the earth. My heart will stop beating. The blood will stop coursing through my veins. I will no longer take in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. I am going to expire. And because our God is loving and because our God is unstoppable and because God can bend nature to his will whenever and however he wants, I will rise on the third day and I will breathe again and I will be glorified and I will be sitting at the right hand of the God, the Father, and from whence I will come to judge this world. If you have a problem with Jonah, if you have a problem with Moses, if you have a problem with the signs that you have already seen, that have already happened in our church history, man, you're going to have a problem with me. And the answer that Jesus gives is, you don't need a sign. You need to repent. You've been given signs. You need to repent. Listen, listen to how he, he closes out this conversation. As if that admonishment wasn't strong enough, he just kind of puts this spiritual bomb in the middle of the room and he just walks away. And it... Listen to how he responds and closes the conversation with these guys. He speaks about his second coming. At Christmas, we celebrate Jesus' first coming, his first advent. But there is a work of Jesus that is yet to be done, and it is his second coming. And whereas Jesus came at the first advent in his birth in the form of a baby, in the form of a servant, here in his second coming he will come as a judge, riding a white horse with a sword in his hand. And listen to who he says. Listen to who he says is coming with him. Let me remind you, this is 750 years after Jonah. Listen to what Jesus says. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation to condemn it. Who? The very men of Nineveh. Why will they rise up and judge it? Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. If the problem is this, or if, excuse me, if the solution is this, for God to send his only beloved son, innocent, and to spill his precious blood on our behalf, if that is God's severe means of reconciling his people to us, what does that tell us about the problem, the severity of our problem? You don't put a stitch on a mosquito bite, and you don't send a perfect son for a little squabble. You send it for a great rebellion. You send it for a great sin. You send it for a great opposition to the authoritative God that resides in heaven. Friends, we need no more signs. We have Jonah. We have the resurrection. We have a great hope. Our response is simply repentance. Asking the Lord that he would be the subject 
of our narrative, asking the Lord that he would intervene, that we would have a but the Lord moment, and that he would rescue us. It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. May it be so for you and for me. Let's pray together. Father, would you allure us to yourself, not because of fear of judgment or fear of wrath or fear of shame or fear of of storms or whales, but allure us to yourself because of your great kindness. As you sent the whale to rescue Jonah, as you sent the storm to cause his eyes to see, so, Father, too, draw us to yourself because of your great kindness. And for no other reason we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We come now to the Lord's.